and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so excited to be here today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, on behalf of Texas, I'd like to apologize because as The Guardian (laughs) notes, we're very sorry after mistakenly sending emergency alerts for a cursed Chucky doll. Oh, Oh. didn't know we did that, but it sure seems like it needs an apology. (laughs) Right? I didn't get this alert either, but now I'm kind of wishing I had because officials have had to apologize for a test malfunction after message asking citizens to keep an eye out for film villain was sent three times. Three times. <laughs> three times. And it's got a really nice like screen grab of the evil possessed doll from the horror movie series Child's Play, whom it said was a suspect in a kidnapping. Uh, apparently, <laughs> this message went out over the state's Amber Alert system. And I do get some Amber Alerts. Yeah, yeah. Which it blasted <laughs> to people's mobile phones, usually to help find a missing child. That's what the Amber Alerts are for. Mm-hmm. It described the suspect as being being called Chucky and listed him as a 28-year-old with auburn hair, blue eyes, who stood at three feet, one inches tall and weighed 16 pounds. I mean, it was straight up a description of Chucky that someone put in there as a joke and then they accidentally sent it to everybody. Oh, yeah. He was said to be wearing blue denim overalls with a multicolored striped long sleeve shirt. And here's the kicker. His race was listed as other colon doll (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm just imagining being somebody on the receiving end of that alert who is somehow not aware of who chucky is yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) how perplexed and alarmed you might be sure right I i was thinking about maybe it was better that it was clearly sort of spoof information and not like somebody made something up and now everyone's really looking for a serial killer. Mm-hmm. But you're right. If someone hasn't seen the movie, that's really disturbing. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I mean, in this age of QAnon and misinformation, I wouldn't be surprised if there were a few tinfoil hat wearers who are thinking, OK, dolls. Dolls are coming to life. Right. It's actually come to life and they're covering it up. They don't want us to know. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from Slate.com, and it's titled, Gaming the System. The stock market is a casino. (laughs) Uh, To be precise, it is 15% casino. So says Alec Kumar, an economist at the University of Miami who studies the relationships between gambling and stock market data. Hmm. Now, you know, we had to cover this at some point on Mm -hmm, the podcast, mm -hmm. so uh, GameStop which was the number one traded stock in the world for several days last week, does not actually fit Kumar's definition. It's just too expensive right now. And before Reddit traders discovered it, it was not particularly volatile. So textbook lotto stocks are no-name or forgotten companies like BlackBerry and Kodak. And obviously, there's a great deal of YOLOing to be done with a stock like Tesla (laughs) as well. Mm -hmm. GameStop, however, is linked to lottery stocks in an important way. Its Richter scale swings are intimately tied to the presence of retail investors or just average everyday people who might put money into the stock market. 
GameStop's meteoric week was the dramatic culmination of a year of unprecedented democratization of the stock market. And in Kumar's research, which spans three dozen countries, stock market gambling clearly rises with market participation. Mm. So the saying attributed to Joseph Kennedy, uh, it's time to sell when the shoeshine boy starts giving stock tips, seems very quaint and not just because no one's worn leather dress shoes since last March. Uh, <laughs> the subreddit Wall Street Bets, which drove the GameStop run-up, now has 8.4 million members. And uh, if I recall correctly, it was like one and a half million like two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And now it has millions more casual visitors. And the app Robinhood, whose no-fee trades pushed brokers like E-Trade and Charles Schwab to quash transaction costs got 3 million downloads in January alone. So there's mm -hmm. one popular way to think about this episode, which is as a David and Goliath story of downtrodden internet traders taking down the heavyweight hedge funders. But the more accurate and more obvious way of seeing things is that a democratized stock market is just one of the ways that America is rapidly renewing its taste for gambling. Hmm. Typically, stock market gambling is correlated with casino restrictions, Kumar says, which reflects a fixed baseline desire to place bets shifting to what's available, a theory that may apply to pandemic-era closures of actual casinos. But what does not follow is that more widespread stock market access necessarily eats into the popular appetite for casino gambling. And on the contrary, many forms of gambling may thrive at the same time. It all kind of happens at once. Hmm. In July, DC's Capital One Arena became the first NBA venue to open an on-site sports book with a ceremony that featured season ticket holders of the Capitals, Mystics, and Wizards making bets. And even the Commodity Futures Trading Commission is entertaining a proposal to open futures markets for NFL games. And what? I don't really know what that looks like or how that works exactly, because, you know, normally market. it's a price. Yeah, yeah. but uh, I guess they're just betting on, on some spread of, of wins or something like that. I don't know, but that's pretty wild. The sports betting frenzy comes on the heels of a May 2018 Supreme Court decision that ended Nevada's monopoly on the practice. Ah. And since that decision, more than two dozen states and the District of Columbia have approved sports bets. And no one really knows how big the market is at this point, but it's likely in the tens of billions. So since the reemergence of Atlantic City as a gaming destination in 1978, many local governments have considered casinos as tools of urban regeneration. Uh, cities like Niagara Falls, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Detroit, Springfield, Massachusetts, St. Louis, Cincinnati, Cleveland, and New Orleans have all approved downtown casinos with varying success. Mostly, they fail to revive their surroundings, but they do create jobs and tax revenue. Hmm. Andrew Yang, the entrepreneur currently leading the field in the New York City mayoral race, would like to build a casino in the New York Harbor. And it's a little hard to fathom just how great a reversal this represents from half a century ago. In mm -hmm. 1964, there was just one state lottery, and revenue from tribal gaming, most of which was permitted by a 1987 Supreme Court decision, grew from $212 million in 1988 to $35 billion today. And that's all without mentioning the internet. This is all just physical places. Wow. Naturally, the appeal for betters is as old as time, but some critics have seen a contemporary spirit to the fever since last March as low economic mobility, expensive housing markets, high levels of social distrust, and being locked in the house have encouraged moonward <laughs> mm -hmm. risk-taking in the portfolio. Yep. And uh, here's Alexander Salmon writing in N plus one. By the time the pandemic hit, basically every American institution failed, except, crucially, for the market. American society emerged like some genetically modified chicken, with cartoonishly <laughs> oversized financial markets 
hanging from the chest of a body that could barely walk, see, or breathe. I mean, where's the lie, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not going to say it's wrong. It's just super depressing. Yeah. I know. And I love how, like, in that laundry list of, like, what all caused this, they didn't mention the word, like, rampant widening inequality once. Yeah, because yeah. that's a real factor. When money is tighter, people spend more on lottery tickets. Yeah. And then when people see other people, you know, living in luxury, like, we've got all of our influencers and celebrities mm-hmm. on Instagram doing, we feel, if not entitled, then there's that aspirational component. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, the next paragraph is actually, as user B217 put it, on Wall Street Bets on Wednesday, they really think losing some money is new to the 99%. The 1% <laughs> literally rob us and cheat us out of money every single day. This isn't anything new. This mm-hmm. is just the closest we've gotten to flipping things in our favor slightly, even if it was only something like 0.012% of their wealth. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. So with their onboarding of normies into the stock market are Robinhood and Wall Street bets forces for good. The research suggests that individual investors underperform institutions and not only because of the transaction costs. They tend to buy stocks in the news, they buy companies that are geographically near them or companies where they work. They sell winning investments and keep losing ones, and they don't diversify their portfolios. Mm -hmm. I personally knew it was time to look away from GameStop entirely once my mom was calling me about it. Yeah, Uh, you're like, no, it's done now. That's (laughs) Yeah, it's over. It's all over. Uh, Same thing with Dogecoin, although that is still rocketing. Thanks, Elon. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I'll leave that to the professionals and uh, those with plenty of risk, whatever the opposite of aversion is, risk embracel. I don't know. Uh, Next link. Next link. All right. Well, if we weren't scared by that, we can be scared by this. The conversation has an article titled, These Self-Sufficient Robots Can Have Babies and Colonize Distant Planets. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, (laughs) Emma Hart is the chair in national computation at Edinburgh Napier University. And she's writing here in this article about the Autonomous Robot Evolution Project which is a four-year collaboration between her team and three other universities to design a robot ecosystem that will theoretically travel to Mars or other exoplanets in advance of human astronauts in order to prepare the environment and make it somewhat more suitable to live and work in. Of course, any robot going into an inhospitable terrain is going to have to be tough, and it's also going to have to be recyclable to a certain degree, because we can't just Mm -hmm. ship up a bunch of replacements anytime we want. So the parts need to be reusable, And the robots themselves are going to need to be able to repair each other as they go Mm -hmm. along if they're going to get anything significant done before we get there. And the reusable aspect isn't that hard because 3D printing basically means we can break down parts and create new ones as needed. And robots Mm. that can fix other robots are relatively easy, too. It's just a matter of uploading the right software. Mm -hmm. The difficulty comes in when you start looking at the need for flexibility. Obviously, we've never been to these hypothetical exoplanets beyond Mars, and it's a safe bet that there are going to be things about the terrain or the atmosphere that we just didn't predict, right? Maybe we send up a bunch of robots that are specialized for hard rocks only to find out that much of the ground is soft like a sand dune. Mm, Or maybe mm -hmm. we didn't anticipate a particular chemical in the air that turns out to be super corrosive to certain materials. So what the Autonomous Robot Evolution Project envisions is an active evolution of robot designs in real time based on a back-and-forth feedback system between AI algorithms and the robots they've built. Hart describes it somewhat disturbingly in terms of a physical robot father and an AI mother, where the physical robot provides data about what is and isn't working as it tries to navigate the terrain, 
And then the AI incorporates that information to improve the design and 3D print an improved robot baby. Since there's only one AI, it's really more like a queen bee situation, but just like mm -hmm. real evolution, each mother-father pairing will create several different designs that are 3D printed and released into the, quote, nursery, where the ones that are most successful will make their genetic code available again, while the ones that fail will be hoisted away so their parts can be recycled. It's like a mother eating her young. It works. <laughs> <laughs> and on the one hand, you know, this is what all learning algorithms do. They take what works and yeah. they move more in that direction. But this is definitely the first time that we've taught them to build something in the real world where it's not just theoretical. Mm -hmm. And more specifically, to give those things that they built a learning algorithm of their own. Hart says that so far, two years into the project, they have produced a diverse set of robots that crawl or drive and can learn to navigate through complex mazes. And they've also designed a RoboFab robot to fully automate manufacturing. This robotic arm attaches wires, sensors, and other organs chosen by evolution to the robot's 3D-printed chassis. So it's not completely terrifying, but also it kind of is. Because if, if they find, you know, if, if the AI decides, you know what would work great here? A weapon. Like, they can just start making those, and there's nothing we can do to stop them because they're on another planet. I found this more optimistic and exciting than frightening, but that might be because I am reading, what is it, Becky Chambers' Wayfair series that's very, like, fun sci-fi and embraces, like, biodiversity, including AI diversity. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm kind of into the idea of this. I know it gets into a lot of different kind of ethical issues, but the fact that they're already moving on it, that's what kind of alarms me a little bit. Yeah. Okay. But think about this. Like, have you ever seen that author in person? Maybe that author is actually an AI creation. And this is just the robots laying the groundwork for us being cool with it <laughs> so that <laughs> when they do start making their weapons, we're like, no, the book said it would be fine. That is a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, as long as the people working on these self-creating, self-repairing AI robots are not necessarily under the Elon Musk umbrella, I welcome this kind of diversity on the field. Well, and there are some benefits. So they're not ready to go to another planet yet, but Hart says they are very nearly ready to start cleanup on legacy nuclear waste sites like Chernobyl. So oh, nice. there are some benefits on Earth where maybe we can kind of keep a closer eye on them. And, mm -hmm. you know, if the evolution algorithms aren't getting the job done, maybe the radiation will just mutate them. I mean, who knows? Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's the missing link. There you go. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, good news, everyone. Hitler's toilet seat that was looted by a U.S. soldier during World War II is up for auction. Nice. Somebody who made a bunch of money with Dogecoin is going to buy it, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm actually really curious to know whether someone, like, what kind of person would actually yeah. buy this. But according to the auction company, and this is reported by the Hindustan Times, the family of the, quote, enterprising soldier has now decided to cash in on the two-piece wooden toilet seat with its lid removed. Oh, so they're keeping um, half of it? Or they never had half of it? <laughs> I, I'm not sure if they actually took it, but let's see. They're expecting <laughs> this to fetch around 15 grand. There's a starting bid of five grand. The toilet seat is said to have been looted by a U.S. soldier from Hitler's private bathroom in his holiday home in the Bavarian Alps near Berchtesgarden. Uh, it will be auctioned by Alexander Historical Auctions, LLC, in Chesapeake City, Maryland, on February 8th. So uh, I guess we could look up who actually bought the darn thing. 
about the toilet seat in particular, it measures 19 inches from front to back, 16 inches wide, has two chromed steel fittings. It is set in an old shadow box along with two photographs of the soldier and his immediate superior officer at the Eagle's Nest. It also contains a satirical anti-Hitler newspaper clipping, but the auction company says the items have remained untouched in the basement of the family's home, which I got to say has got to be like having a bit of a ghost in your house, right? Like, you know, it's there. You're not using it. You're not looking at it, but you know that something that touched Hitler's butt is in your basement. That's got to weigh on the psyche, man. I mean, it gives a new meaning to the phrase liquidating your assets. Like he's definitely... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you got the golf clap for that one. Thanks. The story of how this was obtained... uh, um, the soldier is one of the first American soldiers on the scene when they were allied with French troops to reach Hitler's home. The company, quoting a detailed letter from the soldier's son, said the soldier was told by senior officers to, quote, get what you want from the Berghof. <laughs> the Hindustan Times article does include a picture of it, and it's pretty lackluster, I gotta hmm. say. It looks wooden. It was painted with white. It's got some cracks in the paint. It just looks like a toilet seat, y'all. I mean, he could have lost it and then just gotten another one. I mean, he's got the picture that says he was there. How do you, I don't know. 1940s (laughs) toilet seats are a dime a dozen. Like. (laughs) Uh, Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from sci-fi.com and it's titled Physicist Designs Magnetic Thrust Engine That Could Rocket Us to the Red Planet. Hmm. So. With SpaceX continuing the testing phase for Starship and enthusiasm spreading for an actual crewed flight to Mars, an interesting magnetic thrust concept conceived by physicist Fatima Ebrahimi at the U.S. Department of Energy's Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory, or the PPPL, (laughs) might make the mission much more cost-effective. So... Ion thrusters, once the standard mode of acceleration for imaginative sci-fi authors and now the preferred positioning engine for NASA scientists and engineers in their satellites, might have greater endurance and are a lot cheaper to operate, but generate a minuscule amount of thrust for acceleration purposes. This isn't exactly a viable option for a trip to the Red Planet, where hundreds of tons of spacecraft are being moved across the heavens, but Ebrahimi's Princeton team has developed a new concept that involves utilizing the same basic cosmic mechanism that helps shove solar flares outward from our sun. And these violent eruptions are comprised of charged atoms and particles known as plasma, which are imprisoned inside intense magnetic fields. To harness this dynamic energy into an effective propulsion system, Ibrahimi is targeting a type of interaction called magnetic reconnection, which is where magnetic fields in a highly charged plasma environment automatically restructure themselves to converge, separate, and reconverge. There's actually a video on this uh, describing how it works in the Earth's magnetosphere, which is really cool. You can basically imagine the entire Earth as being surrounded by all these tendrils. I'm not exactly sure how it's structured, but basically these will separate. And then when they re-snap together by their magnetic force, they create charges of energy. Hmm. So Hmm. the consequences of the cyclical reaction is an impressive powerhouse of kinetic energy, thermal energy, and particle acceleration. And this phenomenon is not just limited to stars, but also occurs within our planet's atmosphere and tokamak fusion reactors, such as PPL's National Spherical Taurus Experiment. Ebrahimi explains, long-distance travel takes months or years because the specific impulse of chemical rocket engines is very low. But if we make thrusters based on magnetic reconnection, then we could conceivably complete long-distance missions in a shorter period of time. 
While other thrusters require heavy gas made of atoms like xenon, in this concept you can use any type of gas you want. Currently, computer simulations derived from PPL computers and the National Energy Research Scientific Computing Center at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in Berkeley, California, indicate that magnetic reconnection thrusters can theoretically manufacture exhaust velocities 10 times faster than any electric propulsion systems being used today. So wow. that's a really huh. big win. Yeah. 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 And uh, Ibrahimi says that this work was inspired by past fusion work, and this is the first time that plasmoids and reconnection have been proposed for space propulsion. And the next step is just building a prototype. Which I'm sure will be very easy. They'll just, you know, throw one together. <laughs> yeah. It'll be fun. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You know, yeah. uh, just got to make a mini Earth with yeah. its own little magnetized space. Piece of cake, y'all. So are we assuming that this is how the recent UFO sightings, that like that's how they're operating, where they seem to suddenly go and stop and they don't seem to have a particular propulsion? You know what I mean? Like all the videos from the yeah. Navy and stuff where they're just like, no, it just hovers. I don't know. Uh, I've heard and read some things that are, you know, more dubious sources sure. that say that... Uh, we already have access to these sort of magnetic drives in, uh, you know, deep state, military, right. bunkers, whatever. <laughs> uh, and the reason we have those is because, yes, that's what the aliens used. And we have had this technology for like, you know, 40 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, again, all unconfirmed. But to answer the question, maybe, quite possibly. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'll take a maybe. That's good enough for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right, so this next article from The Guardian is enigmatically titled, They Came at Night. And it's about Ooh. the recent discovery of a secret alternative version of the original Dracula movie from 1931. Ooh. So to understand why this alternate version of the film was made, we have to start with a little bit of film history. The first feature-length talkie movie was The Jazz Singer in 1927. And studio executives immediately realized that this new technology presented a problem for international sales. Because in the old days, they could just switch out mm. the printed speech cards in between the shots. And so mm -hmm. for the international release of The Jazz Singer, that's actually what they did. They just turned it back into a non-talkie by playing music uh -oh. over the English dialogue and cutting in foreign language speech cards where there hadn't been any in the English version. But obviously, this was pretty unsatisfying, since the whole excitement was supposed to be that they were talkies. Yep. But mm -hmm. for reasons that aren't really clear, nobody thought that dubbing in foreign dialogue over the English shots was a good idea. That just didn't occur to them, or maybe they didn't have the technology to edit that closely for some reason. But instead, they mm. said, you know what? We have the sets. We have the costumes. Actors are pretty cheap. Why not just have an entirely second crew come in at night and film a shot-for-shot -shot remake of the script in a foreign language as we go along? Yeah. And so they did that for quite a lot of movies. The secondary creations were called MLVs, or multiple language versions. And for a while, they were extremely popular. The 1930 film Paramount on Parade had 13 different versions made simultaneously, <gasps> including Czech, wow. French, Dutch, Hungarian, German, Italian, Japanese, Romanian, Polish, Serbian, Swedish, and Spanish, as well as, of course, English. Wow. Yeah, which, I mean, that's a huge undertaking to make 13 different films, but really the same film at the same time. But if you're going to do it, you might as well do them all at once, I suppose. Right. Ultimately, MLVs fell out of favor, largely because the crews and actors weren't as experienced and the foreign versions ended up looking like cheap knockoffs. And, mm. you know, a lot of these countries had thriving film industries back in their home countries, but there weren't necessarily a lot of actors living in L.A. who spoke Serbian or a lot of directors right. who could communicate with them. So they had to kind of make do with what they had. And the end result just wasn't that impressive. So mm. perhaps the only exception to this rule was the Spanish version of Dracula. 
It was directed by George Melford, who got the gig because he could supposedly speak Spanish. But all the actors later reported that he couldn't. He had just hired a translator (laughs) to stand there next to him and tell the actors what he said. Melford had made a few movies previously, and basically it seems that he felt like getting to make the Spanish version of a big-budget hit like Dracula would be better for his career than making whatever small-time English film he might be given next. So he Mm -hmm. bluffed his way in, basically. And Mm -hmm. when the MLV process fell out of favor, a lot of these old film prints were recycled for their silver content, and Melford's version had been assumed lost since the 1950s. But then, in the early 90s, a copy was found in a film archive (gasps) in Cuba. What? Yeah. And of course, our relationship with Cuba was and still is a contentious thing, and it took four separate meetings to negotiate a temporary loan of the film with members of the UCLA Film and Television Archive flying out in person to convince the Cuban authorities to let them have it for just a little while. Wow. Yeah, ultimately, they did get it. And as of 2015, Melford's film is stored in the Library of Congress. But the film archivists were obviously much too young to have seen it when it came out themselves. And they were shocked at what they found when they finally got to see it. Melford's version of the film is 29 minutes longer with added dialogue that was never in the English version, as well as completely different costuming, different characterizations, and arguably, they say, better cinematography. Wow. Bella Lugosi's Dracula was really creepy and menacing, but the Melford Dracula, who is played by Carlos Villarias, is more debonair and chivalrous, which they say makes his evil side that much more disturbing. It's also quite a bit saucier, with the heroine in these really low-cut dresses that American audiences at the time would have been shocked by. And from a modern perspective, they say Melford's version looks a lot more like where the vampire aesthetic ultimately ended up being today, as opposed yeah, to sexy. Yeah, yeah. the Bella Lugosi version, which obviously looks pretty outdated right now. Yeah. So, I mean, it makes me curious enough to want to see it. I don't speak Spanish well me enough, too. but I could, you know, hopefully get it subtitled maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure there's got to be a fan sub floating around the internet somewhere. Yeah, I mean, once it's in the Library of Congress, you can make, you know, upload it to YouTube and get going. Like, it shouldn't be that hard. (laughs) And the fascinating thing is they seem to have started to revive this MLV technique today, which I know because a while back I stumbled upon a Spanish version of Breaking Bad on Netflix, which was a literal shot-for-shot remake with the same set, same everything, but different actors. And I don't, yeah, it was there. And I was like, am I hallucinating? Like, this is Breaking (laughs) Bad, but it's not. Like I said, it was shot for shot. They had all the sharp angles. They had everything, but it was... I mean, the cinematography is one of the best things about that show. Exactly. So why why break it? Yeah. (laughs) And I don't know if they made it at the same time or they went back and made it after the original was such a hit, but it's definitely out there. You should seek it out because it was trippy to watch it. (laughs) It's called Metastasis. Oh, okay. There you go. He's found it already. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right, we're going to switch gears a little bit. From MassiveSci.com, we have now learned that octopuses sometimes punch fish out of spite. You know, I think the fish might deserve it. Uh, that's just my guess. I don't know. I I want to hear both sides. Well, that Man, they really I, are I, smarter than humans. <laughs> well, the mysterious behavior appears related to collaborative hunting, and as we may infer, 
hints at complex emotions. Mm. So octopuses are super interesting, right? Like two thirds of their brain cells are spread out inside their arms, which means each one can operate independently. They can, you know, change their texture and shape at will. If you've ever seen real time camouflaging, it is Mm -hmm. like magic, right? Mm -hmm. They also apparently cooperate with other predatory fish when they hunt. You know, there are lots of different species that exhibit collaborative behavior in nature. For example, groupers and reef fish will often hunt with octopuses to cover more ground. They understand gestures from other fish, which helps the group capture prey. And now, for the first time, researchers have captured footage of octopuses punching fish, sometimes (laughs) seemingly for no apparent reason. They just want to remind the fish who's in charge. They're like, you know, know, we're around together, but... That's right. You have to assert alpha status in a group, especially when you're talking about interspecies groups, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. These researchers have been studying cooperative hunting events, and they filmed these interactions off the coast of Egypt. And these punches targeted different species of fish, which suggests that this behavior may serve an important function. Because when an octopus punches a fish, it exerts a small amount of energy while hindering an individual fish's hunt. That way, the fish might then lose their position within the hunt or might even be kicked out of the group. So in other words, no, you can't sit with us. (laughs) Or alternatively, this aggression might serve to deter fish from non-collaborative behavior. So stop that or turn this car around, Mm -hmm. right? This behavior may stem from complex cognitive or emotional pathways, because we all know when you start to bully things, it is a sign of uh, higher evolution, right? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think we have to consider the trauma that the octopuses may have been through at home. I think that may be causing them to act out. Like, you know, you can't solve violence with violence. We need to talk to these octopuses. It's a cycle. (laughs) It sounds like a case of like road rage or ocean rage or boat rage. I don't know. What do you call it? I mean, Gulf Stream rage. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) next link next Next link link. this article comes to us from livescience.com and it's titled chemists create and capture einsteinium the elusive Hmm. 99th element oh so scientists have successfully studied einsteinium one of the most elusive and heaviest elements on the periodic table for the first time in decades The achievement brings chemists closer to discovering the so-called Island of Stability, where some of the heftiest and shortest-lived elements are thought to reside. The U.S. Department of Energy first discovered Einsteinium in 1952 in the fallout of the first hydrogen bomb test. The element does not occur naturally on Earth and can only be produced in microscopic quantities using specialized nuclear reactors. It's also hard to separate from other elements, is highly radioactive, and rapidly decays, which all just makes it extremely difficult to study. Mm -hmm. But researchers from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory at the University of California recently created a 233 nanogram sample of pure Einsteinium and carried out the first experiments on the element since the 1970s. And in doing so, they're able to uncover some of the element's fundamental chemical properties for the first time. As it is, physicists know almost nothing about Einsteinium. Co-author of the article, Corey Carter, also an assistant professor at the University of Iowa and former scientist at Berkeley Lab, says it is hard to make just because of where it is in the periodic table. Like other elements in the actinide series, which is a group of 15 metallic elements found at the bottom of the periodic table, Einsteinium is made by bombarding a target element, in this case curium, with neutrons and protons to create heavier elements. The team used a specialized nuclear reactor at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee, one of the few places in the world where Einsteinium can actually be made. 
However, the reaction is designed to make Californium, a name I took a moment to giggle about, which is a (laughs) commercially important element used in nuclear power plants, and so it makes only a very small amount of Einsteinium as a byproduct. Extracting a pure sample of Einsteinium from Californium is challenging because of similarities between the two elements, which meant the researchers ended up only with a tiny sample of Einsteinium-254, one of the most stable isotopes or versions of the elusive element. Carter says, you can't see it, and the only way you can tell it is there is from its radioactive signal. But getting the Einsteinium is only half the battle. The next problem is finding a place to keep it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Einsteinium-254 has a half-life of 276 days, which means that within 276 days, half of the material will have decayed and breaks Mm -hmm. down into Berkelium-250, which emits highly damaging gamma radiation. Oh, so everyone around it will die if they don't. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. If they're not suited up and they haven't dealt with it or whatever, then, you know, it just just becomes extremely radioactive. That's all. Um, The clock is ticking, man. Get on it. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Researchers at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico designed a special 3D printed sample holder to contain the Einsteinium and protect the Berkeley lab scientists from this radiation, so they are covered a little bit in that department. But the element's decay has also created other problems for the researchers. Carter says it's decaying consistently, so you lose 7.2% of your mass every month when studying it. You have to take this into account when you're planning your experiments. Mm. The team at Berkeley Lab was used to dealing with other elements with short half-lives, but still, the team began their work just before the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, which meant that they lost valuable time and were unable to complete all the planned experiments. Mm. The main finding from the study was the measurement of the Einsteinium bond length, or the average distance between two bonded atoms, which is a fun fundamental chemical property that helps scientists predict how it will interact with other elements. They found that Einsteinium's bond length goes against the general trend of the actinides, and this is something that had been theoretically predicted in the past, but has never been experimentally proven before. And compared with the rest of the actinide series, Einsteinium also luminesces very differently when exposed to light, which Carter describes as an unprecedented physical phenomenon, and further experiments are needed to determine why, which I believe just means it glows weird when you put light on it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and we don't know why. (laughs) Yeah, and we don't know why. That's my English version translation of that. Uh, So the new study lays the groundwork for being able to do chemistry on really small quantities, and And these methods will allow others to push boundaries studying other elements in the same way. So this sort of discovery of Einsteinium and all the setup that they had to do to study it will help them study other similar elements with similar properties. The team's research could also make it easier to create Einsteinium in the future. And in that case, Einsteinium could potentially be used as a target element for the creation of even heavier elements, including undiscovered ones like the hypothetical element 119, also called... Ununenium or Ununenium. U N U N E N N I U M. One of the ultimate goals for some chemists would be to then discover hypothetical super heavy elements that have half lives of minutes or even days, meaning they live on this island of stability compared with the microseconds at most for the half lives of other heavy elements. Hmm. So who knows? Maybe we'll have some Einsteinium powered ion thrusters or Einsteinium thrusters or whatever. I am 100% <laughs> sure that's not how that works. But <laughs> right, I, right. <laughs> we don't really know the applications yet, so why not guess wildly? Yeah. yeah, I have to say, I every time you say the name and you're saying Californium and Berkelium and all of them, I have the Tom Lair song going through my head. 
of the elements. Oh. Uh, you guys know that song, right? I don't. I don't think I ever learned Oh, it. yeah, yeah. It's basically all of the chemical elements as they were known in 1960 set to the tune of the Pirates of Penzance. And it's, I'm not going to sing it because that's dumb. But, <laughs> <laughs> but good for but memorization, right? I mean, you've yeah, got yeah, the yeah. memorized well, now. Yeah. And when I was a kid, I was a massive Tom Lehrer fan and I can sing the entire element song. And so I know all of these elemental names, except I don't know Anonymium because that was <laughs> hypothesized and discovered after he wrote his song. So it's uh. not in there. But <laughs> but hopefully we'll give it a cooler name. I mean, if somebody actually creates it and like for a microsecond in a chamber, we'll have to give it a name. We can call it damn interestingium or whatever. <laughs> I support this. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. If you'd like to send us a message, you can get in touch with us at feedback at di.show. You can also support our podcast and keep us on the air by going to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. There are many articles on damninteresting.com. Some of the ones we did not have time to get to today include The Last Secrets of the World's Lost Continent, Do You See Red Like I See Red, and Mars Doesn't Look So Dead After All. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on DamnInteresting.com. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.